I was teasing you about the rain, but I never take for granted the fact that you show up on a Sunday morning to be a part of this church family. I wish I could come to every one of you and say thank you for making this a priority. Thank you for viewing your time with your church family to be precious and important. And I pray every day that the Lord would meet us in his word. We kneel down over there before every service and ask God's spirit to be present. This morning is a tough word. So I'd like to start by doing that together. Could we? So would you join me in prayer? Thank you for the message we just heard sung to us about the difficult stormy times of life. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to calm those storms, but first you rode through them yourself. So I pray that you'll meet us this morning, for there are some here whose lives are indeed stormy. If ours are not, God, may we empathize with those who are, and may we store up for the time when it'll come. Thank you for the way you're going to speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, and I hope that we have a bunch of visitors out here, we are in the middle of something called the 90-Day Challenge. Can we turn these down just a little bit, please? We're in the middle of the 90-Day Challenge. And we are reading together through the Gospels. I'm ring, ring, ringing. We're reading together through the Gospels, one chapter every day, and we're asking ourselves these questions. What do I learn about Jesus, and what do I learn about being a disciple maker? I continue to be blessed by what I've heard from the way that this has transformed us as a congregation, and many of you have been asking, so what's next? So I'll tell you what's next. The Sunday after Easter, we're going to launch 90 Day Challenge 2, and it's going to be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So for the, for the next 90 days after Easter, we are going to study the Holy Spirit. We spent 90 days learning more about Jesus. We're going to read the book of Acts together for the, the next 90 days. And we are going to find out more about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and what he does in building up his church. So I hope you will be as excited and filled with gusto uh, in pursuing that as you have been so far. And if you haven't gotten started, this will be a great chance for you to, uh, to jump in. Last week, I shared with you at the beginning of the sermon something that had happened to me that morning, and uh, I really wanted to revisit it because it seemed particularly apt today. I told you that I got up quite early, and I went down to the kitchen, if you recall, and, I, and I, in my early morning daylight savings time stupor, I, I opened the, the refrigerator door and leaned down uh, to grab a, a hard-boiled egg, and the the door fell off of the refrigerator and landed on top of me. And I recreated this for you to... uh, uh, I recreated it for you to to catch an idea of the experience for me. And I have to tell you, it was a very surreal experience. I was surrounded by ketchup bottles and by pickle jars. And I remember literally thinking as I'm lying there, I just laid there for a moment saying, what in the world just happened to me? What in the world just happened to me? And um, I am pleased to say that uh, I ordered a hinge and in a very manly fashion, I, uh, I repaired my own refrigerator door. Don't need no stinking repairman to... <clears throat> but still that question, what in the world just happened to me? You laugh at me because you love it when uh, I make a fool of myself. 
But seriously, there's not a person in this room who at some time in their life hasn't and will not uh, have a similar experience where without warning, life seems to fall in on you. And you find yourself saying, what in the world just happened to me? And as you look around you, it is not ketchup bottles and pickle jars that surround you, but it's the pieces of your marriage and the remnants of your health and the shards of your reputation and the fragments of your financial future. And you say, what in the world just happened to me? Over the last few months, we've been talking about how Jesus makes disciples and through parables and through miracles and through relationships and through conversations. Jesus makes disciples. But in this week's last readings, the last seven days, we have learned that Jesus also makes disciples in the awful things of life. When life suddenly falls in on you, when you find yourself lying on your back saying, what in the world just happened to me? But that's not the way that we want to grow as disciples, is it? We want to grow through miracles. We want to grow through parables. We want to grow through great conversations, through the the good things and the, the marvelous things. That's the way we want to become disciples. But the simple truth is, however good and marvelous life can be, and it can, there will be times when it's awful. Even for the followers of Jesus. I sat with with a man for lunch this week who once held his daughter after she had just been hit by a truck and he knew that she was gone. That's awful. The session prayed Thursday night for a young husband who is the father of a one-year-old boy who just found out that the, the throat cancer that he had thought was in remission has metastasized into his lungs. It's awful. This week I <clears throat> this week I emailed a man in prison, and if he doesn't pay protection every week, he gets beaten up. That's awful. And Christians are who are in the Muslim world are fighting for their lives against this stark evil called ISIS. Christians are being kidnapped in Nigeria and in Libya and in Syria and being beheaded. It is awful, awful, awful. So how many here this morning who who love Jesus, who are seeking to serve him with their lives, how many would say that sometime in their life things have gone awful? Raise your hand. And if you would dare to say it, how many would say that right now, I'm going through awful things. How many would say that right now? Okay, keep your hands up. Before we go any further, would you look around you if you see someone with hand up? Reach over, touch them, or extend, and we're just going to pray. Lord, for some, it was probably a, a labor to drag themselves into the doors of your church this day because of what they're going through with the brokenness of their heart, the heaviness that they're experiencing. So for everyone who would say today, Right now, it's awful. I pray for them. And I ask that the presence of your spirit and the presence of their church family on either side, touching them and reaching out to them, would be a balm to their souls. That you would lift them up today because they came to the house of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Life is sometimes hard. Life is sometimes awful. And being a Christian is no guarantee that you will not experience awful times. Although not according to some preachers. There are huge churches that are being built around the promise that as a Christian, you are guaranteed prosperity, health, and protection. And of course such churches grow, especially in America, because that is the message we Americans love to hear. Who doesn't want to be told that if you belong to Jesus, you'll have a bigger home, a newer car, a bigger IRA, a healthier body, a perfect marriage, and and model children, and no problems, no awful times. But sooner or later, every one of those persons will find a refrigerator door on top of them. And then what will be the condition of their faith? What will they feel about the God who promised these things and seems to have taken them away? Either that he's a liar, or he's incompetent, or he's a rascal that enjoys toying with him for his own delight. But the biggest problem with this false teaching, and that is exactly what it is, is that it goes directly against the teachings of the Master. And it goes against his own life example. You cannot read last week's chapter... And not understand that. In fact, you begin to realize that the awful times of life are hard, but they are the deep way that Jesus makes genuine disciples, not posers. Not those who want to claim the name of Jesus when everything is going going good, but those who stand firm in the storms and the adversities of life. The real genuine disciples of Jesus, which I hope we are building here. In Luke 20, we saw what the religious leaders are doing. And if you paid attention again and again and again, we saw they were trapping, they were looking, they were waiting for some way to to catch Jesus in something he said or something he did in order to turn him over to the officials and destroy him. That's awful. Why would you do such a thing? In Luke 21, Jesus prophesies about the end times. He talks about famine. He talks about pestilence. He talks about earthquake quakes. He talks about warfare. And I don't read anywhere in there that he says, but my, all my followers will be saved from that. As a matter of fact, he says, you need to be careful. You need to be ready to run. It will be hard times for you. And if you are a follower of mine, you're going to be betrayed. By your own family members. By your own friends. Some of you will be betrayed. If you've ever gone through betrayal by those closest to you, how awful is that? In chapter 22, we watch as Jesus himself then lives out what he just said would happen to others. Jesus himself is betrayed. Judas, who walked with him for three years, sells him out for the price of a slave. And Peter the rock didn't do much better, did he? He denied him as well. And for the rest of the disciples, they fled like rats leaving a sinking ship. And Jesus was alone. He was arrested. He was abused. He was blindfolded. He was mocked. He was beaten. Even in chapter 1 of John's gospel, which we began today, we, we see a hint of this that's going to come in fullness at the end of John's gospel. In verse 10, he says, he came to his own. But remember, but his own received him not. That is a stark word. He, the word of God, the son of God came to his own. And his own received him not. Those are awful things. But there's nothing more awful in Luke's gospel than chapter 23. For when we read chapter 23, we read the story of the awful death of Jesus. 
So I invite you to close your Bibles because I want to tell you a story. As they led Jesus away to be crucified, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. And they, and they put the cross upon him. And they made him carry it behind Jesus. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And they came to a place called the Skull. And there they crucified Jesus. And the criminals with him. One on his right hand and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers, the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. The chosen one. And the soldiers came up also to mock him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A notice was written above him that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung near him heaped insults upon him, saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. And darkness fell upon the whole earth until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And the centurion who saw all that was happening praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. This is a story from God's holy word. This is the most awful chapter in Luke's gospel. For here we watch with horror as the most perfect man who ever lived. The man who taught as no one has ever taught. The man who healed people with a touch or even a word. The man who multiplied food for the hungry. The man who cast out evil spirits from the pitiful. The man who quieted storms with a rebuke. 
The man who touched dead bodies and raised them back to life. We watch how the world receives such perfect goodness. Does it throw a party? Does it place a crown upon his head and own him as Lord and King? Does it bow before him as the creator of all? How does the world greet this perfect love? It killed him. It laid open his brow with a crown of spiky thorns. It laid open his back with a whip tipped with glass and lead. And it laid him upon a beam soaked with the blood of its previous victims and drove spikes through his wrist bones and through his heel bone and raised him up into the sky to mockery. And as a warning, he was hung in such a way that slowly, painfully, sadistically, he would suffocate. The perfect, sinless Son of God who never did anything bad and always did everything good died and it was awful. And I know death will not have the last word. I know he died to give us life. I know the Easter is right around the corner but for the moment we will pause in front of the horror of this awful moment. If the teachings of Jesus are to be believed and if the example of his own life is to be any indication, every disciple of Jesus will face awful times. The question then for us this day is how do we allow the awful times to build us up instead of tearing us down? How can even the awful things make us better disciples of Jesus Christ? And I think Jesus gives us three truths They are the three last gasping lessons that he utters from the cross. Thank God for Luke. He is the only one who captures these three statements of Jesus from the cross. Only Luke. And they were spoken, of course, in the midst of this moment that was the most awful moment of his life. So perhaps the Savior can speak to us words of wisdom and encouragement in our awful things. First of all, we hear this unlikely cry from Jesus as the soldiers drive the spikes home and lurch him up into the sky. He says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what he is doing. And the cynics in the crowd would have been inclined to say, are you kidding? They know exactly what they're doing. They're killing the greatest risk to institutional religious power that has ever come along. They were killing the Son of God. And they deserve the vengeance of the Heavenly Father. They deserve to be struck down with lightning in that moment. But that is not what Jesus begs. He begs forgiveness. He pleads their ignorance. He offers benefits of the doubt for the horrible things that they are doing to him. Jesus' first words in the face of awful things, his first word is Grace. One of the supremely awful thing about awful things is that it can embitter us. When we have been betrayed and abandoned and abused or mistreated or slandered or impoverished, we want to lash out. We want to strike back. We want retribution. We want vengeance. 
One of my awful things was a seven-year legal battle through accusations that I considered unfounded and unfair. And it drove me into depression. And there were times when I wanted vengeance. When I wanted my accuser to be crushed so that I might be vindicated. But I could tell that in those longings for justice, they were only eating away at my soul. And in the end, I begged the Lord to give me the same grace that Jesus was able to offer on the cross, for goodness sake. The the grace that offered forgiveness and sought reconciliation. And I realized that it was not for my enemy's sake. It was for my sake. Anything less than grace in that moment, anything less than the grace of Christ, only embitters, only possesses, only destroys me and you. Whatever awful thing you are experiencing, however you have been hurt or wronged or defamed, the message from Jesus' parched lips is the same to all of us. Grace, grace, incredible grace. Let go of the longing for vengeance and retribution and trust God to defend your honor and mete out justice, but you choose grace. The next word Jesus spoke to the criminal who was beside him. Remember that criminal's plea? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' reply was, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And again, the mockers would have said, are you kidding? Because first of all, they're not going to die today. Crucifixions didn't happen that quickly. Crucifixion is one of the most evil ways of killing someone ever devised precisely because it was intended to drag out the excruciating torture over hours and even days. Often, the helpless souls whose arms were nailed or roped to the beam would have their eyes pecked out by birds of prey while they were still alive. And even when they had breathed their last, that all that remained for them was to be taken down rudely and thrown onto a smoldering burn heap in a valley that was called Gehenna. That was the paradise that awaited them. But the incredible promise of Jesus to this, to this no good, rotten criminal was who had turned to him in his last moments, you're going to join me in paradise. And such is the power of the mercy of Christ that he can save even the scum of the earth at the last hour. There is something better. There is something to be hoped for. There is something more ahead of us. No matter how awful, that's the word hope. If the first word is grace, the second word is hope. No matter how awful these present circumstances, the follower of Jesus has hope that things will get better. In fact, it is a guarantee. Remember, Jesus... This is the Jesus who does miracles of healing and restoration and resurrection. No one can offer a greater hope in the face of what the world says is hopeless than the Lord Jesus. But even if he chooses not to answer prayers for deliverance in this life, there awaits all who love him the promise of a paradise that will make the best that this world has to offer look like a slum. And we who have it so well sometimes forget of the wonder of the paradise that awaits us. I remember sitting with a dying man on the Saturday before Easter and saying to him, Bud, you are going to celebrate Easter before the rest of us because today you will be with Jesus in paradise. And shortly after that, he breathed his last. 
to the person who suffers in an awful season of life, the sure promise of Jesus is this. It will get better. Whatever you are facing, it will get better. Don't lose hope. So he says grace. He says hope. And then the final word of Jesus actually turns out to be the final words of Jesus on the cross. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was suffering on the cross, of course. It was an awful death. But for Jesus, the death, what he faced after death was going to be even greater suffering. It is why he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane because Jesus knew that what awaited him upon his death was this. He was the sacrificial scapegoat upon whom the entire weight of the sin of the world would be laid. Every foul thing that ever been thought or said or done, he was going to carry it. And the apostles teach that he actually would descend into hell and he would take with him all of that hellish stuff and deposit it there. Of course, he would rise to victory, but it meant that in those three days, Jesus would experience something he had never experienced since eternity past. He would be separated from his heavenly father. Because the holy God could not look upon the sin-soaked son. And so God the Father pulled back. Jesus was abandoned as he took the sin upon himself. And so he was tortured by the thought of that. He was terrified by the thought of that. It wasn't just his brutal death that Jesus was going to have to suffer. It was the prospect of a broken relationship with a father that he had been in eternal, perfect relationship with. And yet in those final words of surrender, we hear this. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. In other words, I trust you. It looks awful and it is frightening, and yet I trust you. And that is the final word that Christ speaks to, the awful things of our life. Trust. Trust God. Even though you can't see a way out. Even though you are in pain or frightened or angry. Perhaps even angry with God. Trust Him anyway. He has proven Himself trustworthy. He loves you. He has His hand on you. And in the end, no matter what life dishes out, if you trust God, as Jesus put it earlier in the, in the gospel, He says, not a hair on your head will perish. Sometimes life is awful, even for Christians. In fact, sometimes because we are genuine Christians, life gets awful. If someone promises otherwise, they are a false prophet. But the words of Jesus to us in these awful times, those moments, are these. Grace, hope, trust. Defy betrayal with grace. Defy despair with hope. Defy doubt with trust. And you watch as the triumphant one redeems even your awful things.